Kanye played that game until he overplayed that game, but it worked for him. And I think he taught a whole generation of, of communicators that in order to get one up in this kind of communication environment, you had to play a different game. So, yeah, that's what I mean. Their game that they're playing it seems to me like a lot like Trump's game. For I mean, how long are you going to hear David Sachs complain about not being able to talk endlessly on his super popular podcast or Fox News? Or is really dead. Like, I just like how, how much bullshit can we take? I don't know, man. But a lot more people listen to his podcast than ours. versus Algorithms is a show about detecting patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey, writer of the Rebooting Newsletter and podcast of the same name. And each week, I'm joined by longtime media executive, investor, and advisor, Troy Young, who writes the People versus Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer of Universal Entities. I wanted to promise you that this would be an Elon Musk and SBF-free episode, but I cannot do that. I wanted to tell you this would be a place where you could take a refuge from the torrents of takes, hot, lukewarm, and cold, on these two characters who are dominating what's now called the discourse. But we have to talk about this, I think, this week. And that's because, you know, we're talking about cults at the end of the day. And now growing up, like, cults were a real fear. I mean, 2020 would run scary stories of people falling in with a cult, losing all their money. There would be a concerned you Downs and Barbara Walters discussing how to keep your friends and family free of cults. And the TV news would regularly end with highlights of a mass wedding that Reverend Moon would be holding in football stadiums. It was a part of the time. And, and the thing is, I think cults are back now. There's QAnon and MAGA, of course, but we've seen with the rise of many community-based movements that they look act and smell a lot like cults. I mean, our current obsession with entrepreneurs has created cults of personality for sure. Elon Musk has an army of followers who hang on his every tweet. SBF has created a cult uh, around his own effective altruism that funded his crypto empire. And crypto itself, I mean, as we discussed, it often looks like a cult. So let's get on to the discussion and find out more. I want to start by talking a little bit about cults, because I have this theory that we're in a, a golden age for cults. And I think there's a whole bunch of different reasons that we're in it. But when you really look at what's going on with SBF and even Elon Musk at Twitter, it really fits into the general definition of, of a cult, which is vague. But like I, I looked it up on the this person who claims to be an international authority on cults and coercion. And, and here are the, some of the defining characteristics. Excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to a leader, uh, questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged. Mind-altering practices are usually there. And leadership dictates sometimes in great detail how members should think, act, and feel. That's micromanagement. It, this group is elitist, claiming a special exalted status for itself. Polarized us versus them mentality. And the leader himself or herself, usually it's a himself, I have to say, uh, men are definitely more prone to leading cults is not accountable to any authorities. This literally fits exactly what Elon Musk is doing at Twitter, does it not? Yeah, or he's a driven, you know, owner of a business trying to change it over a quick, you know, over a very tight timeline. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, come on, Troy. You well, don't believe that. 
I mean, come okay. on, it fits to it. It's the cult of engineering that he's trying to instill I mean, here at Twitter, right? And he, he sent an email uh, last night at midnight, of course, in which he said, going forward to build a breakthrough Twitter 2.0 and succeed in an increasingly competitive world, we will need to be extremely hardcore. This means working long hours at high intensity. And he says that it's going to be engineer driven. And then he asks people to click yes to agree and gives them an ultimatum of 5 p.m. on Thursday. Yeah, it's funny. I think that my take on it is a little bit different. I mean, I think it's, it, it's good to have that bullet list of what makes a cult. But one of the things, I think this is more like the only management style, as far as I can tell, the only management style that Elon Musk knows. And it's to create a big, big, big urgent goal to rally people behind that goal with sort of by any means necessary in some cases and to the extent any extent possible to make it feel like it's a worthy goal like getting to the moon or saving the planet in this case creating the square for free and open dialogue and then to push people extremely hard and show that you're in it with them by sleeping in the office the other thing though i think the more interesting thing on the cult comparison brian is you have to look at who it serves. And this is the question with Elon. Because to me, it's playing into kind of like a vacuum of self-worth and meaning on part of on the part of the person that signs up for the cult. Right? Yeah. Is that the case? Do the people that follow Elon, do the people that work for Elon do so proudly and as, you know, strong, stable, independent-minded people? Yeah, I just wonder it, how effective it is. Alex, I want to bring you in on this because, you know... Who does he attract, I wonder? You've worked in these types of organizations too. Like what... Is this even... A, is this effective? Like I would just question whether it's effective. Like I would I would assume a lot of people have worked for in Elon Musk organizations, not necessarily because they want to, but because the money is really good and you can well, get Well, clearly rich. it's effective. They made a car. They got... Well, they sent a rocket up. Yeah, but Troy, I think it's effective... But maybe not in this case. And here's why. When he got people to work extra hard to build a car, send a rocket into space, then people could really, you know, get into the mission, right? There was a big mission there. And if you were into making cars or building rockets, there was one company to work for, and it was Tesla or SpaceX. In this case, he came in with the attitude that everyone at that company sucks, and they've all been doing nothing, which is, you know, I, I think the company hasn't done a lot, and, and there's definitely critique there. And then basically created a bunch of issues that he's now asking everyone to solve. Like a lot of these issues we're about to, especially we're about to go bankrupt, wasn't the case before he joined. <laughs> because I put this company into massive debt. Now you all have yeah. to work extra hard to get out of it. That's not motivating, man. And these people yeah. can go work somewhere else. They all want to. Well, I, I would say this. Like, it is interesting that this approach that he's taking, and it's very clear he believes in the 20x engineer or whatever. Usually it's used with developers, with engineers, that he, he believes that a small team can get a tremendous amount done versus a massive team of like mediocre people. And this is coming after most of these big tech platforms doubled or even tripled their employee base and are now like cutting tens of thousands of, of people. So I think it's interesting that this approach that he's taken, like either do it this way or you leave and it's going to be hardcore is maybe it's that we're at the end of a cycle because the pendulum is swinging back more. It's certainly been a theme in a lot of emails I've gotten lately from members of the boss class 
I think that's very much the case. Just before we get to that, I wonder if you're an employee of Twitter, Alex, say you were because you did work for a fast moving, fast growth or San Francisco based company. Do, do you say when someone comes in and say and says, you're useless, you didn't really build anything, your culture is broken, most of you are dumb. Is there anything in you that says, I want to prove you wrong, I want to stay here, that good talent ends up staying and says, you know, maybe Elon was right, we didn't get we didn't get much done, this was a really dysfunctional culture, Jack was an absentee CEO, this place has been fucked up forever, and I want to fight the good fight. Do any of the good people say that? Is there a chance yeah. that they do? Well, I can, I can, I've spoken to people before Elon was coming on because I was very deeply curious about what was happening in the company. And a fair number of them said, I'm actually curious and interested and kind of excited about change coming in because Jack wasn't making any decisions and maybe Elon is what we need. They were kind of, you know, uh, cautiously optimistic. Three days in, they were like, fuck this, I'm out. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because there was a way to save this business, but it's may maybe not in a way it's being handled. Well, so the, I'm just sort of trying to take the other side for a bit. And, I, and I'm saying that e both Elon has no patience and because of the pressure on the business, there's not a lot of time to wait for cultural change. Cultural change in, in companies, big companies, takes a long, long, long time. And he's think, trying to accelerate it. I think the problem is not... I think... That's fine. He can come in as an agitator and and ignore the culture. I, you know, I think that's uh, probably what the company needs. The issues are probably more technical than that. I think he's added a bunch of debt, so everybody's worried about the company now. And he's just fired a bunch of people without really knowing the type of work that goes on in the company. And there's stacks and stacks of old decade-old code that could collapse and people don't really know where it is or how to handle it. You know, you can't, you can go into a new business and have 20 engineers build something amazing. But once you've got more than five years of codes to sift through, I don't care how good your engineers are. It's a house of cards. Yeah. There's, well, there's one way to find out. Yeah, just, what do you mean? Fire, fire everyone and let it run, see what happens? See what happens. And, and, and well, if Twitter well, goes down well, one day... Yeah, what happens is that Mario was just flicking the finger to fans and, <laughs> and the brands were just insulting each other. That's what happens. But I wonder, like in three to five years, and I assume he's thinking this way, is looking back, will this just be seen as like a blip? And I think you do have a point, Troy, that like we always focus on the immediacy and particularly nowadays with just like the daily updates or hourly updates, as it were. But like looking back, like, if he is able to turn around Twitter, I think you could make the case that what what we've seen these last like few weeks were just blips or like an important way to like force change, burn it all down and then build it up again. I think whether it's like how do you balance like keeping it running versus like enacting, you know, real fundamental change this is the question. And the point I think that's very interesting, Brian, that you made, I believe, yesterday is that not just Twitter, but certainly any of these, well, Google, Facebook, whatever, companies that trade in kind of media economics 
and and uh, very very profitable ad businesses that are driven by software have invested an enormous amount of money on people and cultures of deep entitlement and employee benefits, obviously, like crazy, crazy stuff like that always surprised me. I remember this just a little anecdote. I was uh, I was going to graduate school in, in, in Montreal and I joined this little scrappy cultural newspaper and we had to work really hard and do 10 jobs and, you know, it just felt like a normal company. And Jill and I, Jillian and I moved to Toronto and I was looking at another job and I went to this ad agency and all the creatives were, were playing golf in the hallways of the atrium. They were putting balls and there was like, it was, it was just, a, I just thought the most fantastic, incredible, like I'd never seen a place like that where you could have so much fun at work. And then I remember maybe it was a decade later going to Google and I was invited to, to, to a meeting there and uh, we were having lunch together and in, in, in one of the cafes and it was extraordinary. The Indian food was amazing. The naan was fresh and it was crab day. So there was these piles and piles of crab legs. And I just thought, oh my God, the, the, this, is, this is just so foreign to me. Like the, the, just the, the kind of perks of being an employee in these companies. Anyway, through a period of, I guess, of, you know, 10 to 15 years, there became expectations around salary, work environment, workload, all of that stuff that just became kind of crazy. And it's really, for example, and, it, and I, would, I would, by the way, hold it in very, very sharp contrast to, for example, the environment that my daughter worked in at, say, Bank of America Merrill Lynch as a banker. You know, meaning she was expected to like do whatever it took at any hour of the day, including weekends. And she, you know, didn't get crab legs. So there's a big story here, Brian, underneath. Like, is it over? Is this kind of culture over? Well, I mean, kind of going back to what we said, like it's the it's the correction. Right. And there will be an overcorrection. Right. Like, I think what what. What Elon Musk is doing, I think a lot of people in the boss class are like, good, 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 good. I mean, they're they're like begging people, begging people to come to the office twice a week. It's kind of nuts. But there's a hypocrisy in this, and I want maybe you and Alex to comment on it. Listen, you know, every different type of vocation makes or does not make money for different reasons, and the culture exists for different reasons. Journalists are among the hardest working and most poorly paid people in, in, in the professional class, right? Bankers happen to be very close to money, which happens to be very useful in terms of making money because you're making other people money. But there's this thing in Silicon Valley where we have said there is a group of people that skill set that has a lot of leverage on it, right? If you make good code that millions of people use, there's a lot of leverage in that job, even if, by the way, you're not immediately connected to money. And we are going to pay you and treat you a certain way and pay you a huge amount of money, even though you're, you're perhaps part of a class of people that complain about inequity a tremendous amount. So there's to me, there's a whole kind of conflict in this in this world of like, deep, deep kind of entitled behavior, right? And then a real sort of criticism of society that isn't 
taking care of people the same way when you don't even know what it's like to have to work, you know, really hard to make a half decent living. Honestly. Yeah. No, I don't buy it. <clears throat> I don't think people are that homogenous, man. I think there was. I've These are the most entitled people in the world. Well, I mean, they're entitled in so far like, you know, an NBA player feels entitled to make $60 million because he can shoot Dude, a ball Dude, there's grip. 400 like, of on. them. There's I, 420 but, NBA players. But the market, the market paid as much well, as yeah, it did. I think, I think and offer those perks. Like, why would they say no to that? We're coming at the end of a cycle in which like the pendulum swung very far in on the side of quote unquote talent, right? You can say that these people are Elon Musk would say a lot of these people are not very talented, but like, let's just face it. It, it, it did go in that direction. And, and now there's going to be a correction. The fact that, that Meta is laying off 11,000 and, and so forth, it's, it's going to end up paring back a lot of this. You call it entitlement. I don't love entitlement, but I think it's probably true that these companies overhired and overpaid and overperked a lot of people. But if I was 25, I would also take the job. And then if I saw that the next job didn't offer me sushi, I'd be disappointed. Like, sure, why not? You know, but this industry has also made trillions of dollars on the backs of these people. Maybe not equally, but these companies were hugely profitable. And they thought, you know, when we were competing with hiring people against Facebook and Google, they were giving people straight out of college, like, you know, massive sign-on bonuses and just sitting them on the bench because they didn't want other people to hire them, you know? So, I'm saying that I mean, there's a, it's happened. totally true. They were making millions of billions of dollars. It created a culture of entitlement that's out of touch with the rest of the world. And it's due for a correction. You can call it whatever you want, you want to call it, but it, it, the, 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 correction should is severe and necessary i think what a lot of this is is a correction right like we ha are coming out of a period where the pendulum swung completely on the side of you know the workers if you will and away from the capital holders and also leadership and just the struggle to get people back in the office is sort of a symbol of that and inevitably you know pendulums always swing and so we're going to see a correction and and i think Alex, you made a good point that, you know, we can't leave leadership out of the discussion of any sort of entitlements because those were expectations and those were those were steps that were taken by leadership in order to make all of these hirings that now they're coming back and apologizing. They say, oh, we, we, we messed up by like hiring too much. But Or the people allocating the capital because VCs were looking at how many engineers you hired as a metric of success for years. For years, startups were asked to hire more engineers and, and, and hit those metrics. So I think, you know, culpability can be spread around a little bit more. Yeah, <clears throat> you guys, you guys need to wake up and you got to realize that our society risks devolving into something less civil and less fair because it's so technological and the people that are able to use modern tools to create value start to live in a very distinct and privileged world. And that's what we created around the these powerful tech companies where you know, starting salaries out of college came in, you know, for data scientists, three, $400,000 plus crab legs, plus, plus, plus. 
And it's a sick world where an enterprising, you know, you name it in any other category outside of even even in even in finance, don't have the, those kinds of privileges and benefits. And I think it's I think it's entitlement, and I think it's overdue. And I think that Elon, in some ways, will come to represent a force challenging that crazy culture. You mean the crazy culture of the cult of the engineer? No, he still loves the engineer, the cult of the just like Silicon Valley privilege. Okay, it's 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 so big, you guys. It's not just compensation. I mean, it's very foreign for me because I've worked in like media companies my whole life, and like they took away our coffee during the like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's my point. I get, I get it, I get it, I get it. But it's not subtle. It feels, it feels a little like it feels a little bit like an like a, 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 a own the lips thing where like you know there's a so much Schadenfreude about a bunch of people losing their job. There's absolutely needs to be a correction. There's absolutely entitlement. But I also so think that the people that are complaining about this entitlement created the environment for the entitlement. That's all I'm saying. Do you know why people hate the tech bros? And this is, in, is because there's this kind of, we know better than you, because we process the world more analytically, because we went to better schools, because we're cle clearer thinkers, because we can we can talk in, in terms of sort of science and research and code and people hate it. People, that's why people hate the tech bros in San Francisco. I mean, I hate the tech bros. I mean, how is it different than people in New York hating the, the finance bros? I mean, it's just the vests are just different, right? All the bros, crypto bros, finance bros. The bros. It's not a good time to be a bro. <laughs> no. Three bros here. <laughs> the employee base that we're talking about is a little bit more direct, uh, diverse than a bunch of yeah. tech bros. But this is the thing, the, the overhiring was not just engineers. Like, I mean, do you know how many like marketing people exist in these companies? That's the whole thing I've always found about Silicon Valley is like, people like act as if it's all like engineers and stuff like this. Majority of these companies are not engineers. I mean, if you look at the it's numbers- 87,000 engineers in Meta. Facebook and, and the big layoffs, it's a lot of HR. And recruiters. Recruiters, you know, yeah. I, I, I had no idea like they had that many recruiters to like that that would make a meaningful. But, but guys, the competition was so intense for talent and the environment like kind of drove you to hire and hire and hire because if you didn't hire that person, Google was going to hire them. And it meant that you needed big teams and spend a lot of money. And it meant that a lot of people got crazy offers. You know what I loved about you know what I loved about you guys from the beginning, Alex, from when I met you. Yeah, the Smurfs, the, the group of you. In, yeah, you were the opposite. You were the opposite of the douchebags. You guys were just, you know, a handful of enterprising guys living in Cyprus, making shit, very modest, perfect. It was the opposite. So don't give that up. Oh no. I mean, we still we did it because we loved we we loved computers. I still, I still love computers. I'm a big nerd, you know. But like, I think no, no, no. So I think these kind of corrections like end up being good in the long run because I think what a lot of people are looking at with the crypto meltdown, right, is best case scenario. Although who knows, it might just all completely meltdown is it's kind of like the dot com. Any of these booms bring in a lot of like tourists and a lot of people who aren't just there for the computers, right? Like 
I'm sure Trey, you saw it at the dot-com era that there was a lot of people who arrived in, in Silicon Valley just to try to get rich and, and whatnot. And, you know, crypto, I'm sure, is the same. And these kind of corrections will end up flushing out a lot of the excesses of, of the system. Yeah. Well, I wonder why so much of this cult stuff happens in California. I went through a list of cults. So many of them are in California. You know, I think the most recent one, I think it's I, always been. Yeah, there was one in Kansas or something, but most of the other ones are. The, what, what one? Angel's Landing, I think, was in Kansas, although they probably moved to California once they got successful. That's um, how it always is. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. You can do your cult wherever you are. It is worth noting that a few years back, me and a couple of friends went to Burning Man and we needed a space to park our van. And one guy said, well, I have this friend who could get us a space, but you know, you're going to be parked next to the one touch people. And I didn't really know what one touch was. And they said, it's the orgasm tent or factory or something like that. And so we got there and they had built a, you know, like a dome structure and it was, uh, they had a sign in front that we ended up stealing actually that said something about free orgasms and times that you could go in and do it for women that is. And they just made, I think it's the most popular documentary on Netflix this week. It's called Orgasm Inc. And it's about this San Francisco, only in San Francisco could you get something like this, this group called One Touch. Are you familiar with it, Alex? Yes. Why did you ask me if I was familiar with it? Well, because he lives there. And yeah, you're sort of more Miami. He's part of the Burning Man scene. So I thought he would have known. <laughs> the Burning Man scene. So why is that? I mean, Alex, you are a Californian. Troy, you're a former Californian. I've never lived in California. I've always viewed it with suspicion for just these reasons. Uh, a lot of cults, a lot of people who... There's a lot of true believers in in various... Like, if you look at like Silicon Valley, it always goes through these kind of like obsessions, you know, and it was Soylent, then it comes intermittent fasting, polyamorism or whatever, however you call it. Why? What's going on in the culture there? I mean, isn't California where people go to find themselves and it's, and it's, it's open to innovation, whether it's social, cultural, or technological? Everything else is kind of fixed. California always feels like it's shifting and allows you to try shit out. So you get weird stuff. You get a lot of failures. You get a lot of successes. I don't know. I like it here. It's the land of opportunity. You keep going west until you hit it. Then you have the ocean and you're kind of stuck there. So it's all of us, you know, end up yeah. here. Okay. I think something that's related to cults, and it's actually a... a a key part of cults is this conspiratorial way of thinking us versus them in group versus out group. The world is against this. And we're seeing this a lot. Like there's a lot of different conspiracy theories out there. I know I've, I've almost fallen prey to a lot of these FTX conspiracy theories. There's definitely a lot of coincidences going on, but this is also, you know, I think a golden age, a little bit of these kind of conspiracy theories. And what I've noticed is again, Silicon Valley loves a conspiracy theory. And what I find very interesting is a lot of the what I consider the elite people in Silicon Valley are convinced that there are conspiracies going on, particularly with the media and, and the, the Northeast 
elites that are trying to uphold the, I guess, the old system for those who are trying to take it down. Is this something you've noticed? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of good examples there. I, I think, first of all, you have to... I mean, it strikes me that it's it. conspiracy theories are more important now because because we spend so much of our reality is is kind of metaversal it's 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 in a digital reality you can't we spend something like you know i mean 10 hours 50 10 to 12 hours a day in digitally mediated environments and in those environments truth is kind of fungible it's like you it's make believe land it's not like real places and i think it so 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 much about where we are with, you know, the relative kind of, uh, well, just the sort of, you know, the, the, the challenge with relative truths is that a, we live in a world, we live in this, this world that we create together, the digital world and where truth is, is, is something we create. And second, uh, we all make media now and our, the media that we make, um, is kind of subject to our own sense of truth. And so then you get guys like, I mean, I think the great person to reference in this conversation perhaps is Balaji because he's, oh, yeah. to me, because this he's is Balaji sort of like, Srinivasan. he's a sort of libertarian technologist, Stanford guy, right? Is he, where is he yeah. from, Brian? I mean, he was the CTO at Coinbase and he started a few companies and he's a crypto utopian type person, I would say, wants to build a decentralized network state. And he's just all in on basically crypto being a alternative to what he believes is woke capitalism. Yeah. And he, he has a little bit of a habit of falling <laughs> in love with himself, his own ideas. He can spout out kind of models with uh, maybe a seductive and, and kind of maybe a little bit of a look over here agility that makes him very convincing and at the same time uh, avoids, you know, necessary facts that may challenge his models. Well, he shoves them in like anyone who has a model, like, like Ben Thompson, let's go to Ben Thompson. It's like, if you have some model or a theory, you just like, you shove whatever happens, whatever facts happen into that model or theory. And I think this is the same way with any conspiracy theories. And maybe we have more of them these days is because they're just more dots out there with our information ecosystem to connect. Whether they connect or not, we just have a lot of dots. So there's a lot of opportunities to connect dots. I have a hypothesis. Okay. I think that we used to be about ideas and people right now, they're not about ideas, they're about enemies, they're about who they're against. Like if you look at the left is against the right, the right is against the left, you know, now we're against, you know, the, the, the kind of the to tech upper class or the billionaires or whatever. And conspiracies are just a great way to make sense of that. When you have ideas that you're trying to push forward, you don't sell them through conspiracies. You sell them through trying to make your ideas stand out. Conspiracies help you have enemies. I think that that's probably true. And another way to, to, to frame it, maybe, you know, in, in a way that feels maybe a little less conspiratorial is that basically we are all, we are all just sort of met the physical manifestations of content. 
we are all these content spouting entities that live in online spaces for 12 hours a day. And when everybody is just spouting content, then it by necessity needs to find ways to stand out. And one of the most effective and convenient ways is to exist in opposition to something else. So it needs to be pointier and more objectionable and challenge someone who's therefore going to respond. It's like a game. It's a game and it's your weapon. And so I, I guess I kind of agree with you. And, and I just think that you see it and you see people that are good at it. Like I, I didn't follow the Fetterman thing very much, but you know, I, and I saw him in that debate and I was like, oh, this is kind of tragic. And, and then if you look at his Twitter feed, which is basically his existence, right? He wasn't campaigning. He was just being kind of a Twitter dude and was very, very good at it, actually. And then yeah. had some nice endorsements in there from like Obama and from Oprah. And, but like, it just felt like, like a proficient content person's Twitter feed. No, I think that's a good point in that, you know, what we're seeing is like trolling as a communication form and, and a very effective one. I don't know if it's a if it's a moment in time with this us versus them approach to the world that, that we have nowadays. But trolling has become, you know, Fetterman really won the election uh, in Pennsylvania against Dr. Oz by trolling Dr. Oz nonstop for not living in Pennsylvania. How did he do that, Brian? What did, what did he do? What else did he say? How did he get him going? He just created memes and like any sort of like misstep, which, you know, is obvious political fodder, but he just mercilessly mocked uh, Dr. Oz. Like an example, like Oz did one of these like videos where he goes to the supermarket and he's like, look at the price of this stuff. And like, obviously Dr. Oz is like incredibly rich guy who's not like rolling to the Wegmans that much, but he mispronounced the name of, of the supermarket. And then he, and then he grabbed like a crudite. He used the word crudite. And that Which is fine. was crossing a line. You're European. You're not, like, you must find this ridiculous. I know, but whenever somebody uses a French word... I used to think it was crudite. Uh, I, you know, okay. I, so I have those kind of... I'm a man of the people <laughs> snorting, Troy. I am sure you would pronounce it crudite, Mr. Canadian. I'm from Saskatchewan and we would call it crudite. <laughs> Saskatoon, yeah. We would call it crudite. Can we go back to this Balaji thing? Because one thing that I've realized that Balaji and, and, and others do that we would call, he tweeted last week, call a, a polarizing attack on the New York Times, suggesting that they were not asking hard questions of SBF in the interview that they like that they're covering up something, right? Wait, he didn't say that. He said they're evil. He said they're an evil organization. He said, no, don't, he said, don't trust them, is what he said. And, and I think that the step before don't trust them, what I'm asking you guys to do is just think about it a little bit differently. And the step before don't trust them is not saying that someone's lying, but questioning their motives and looking deeper at how people manufacture something, an idea, words, etc., when they're advancing their own agenda, right? So it's not like you're lying, but we're always in this state of, projecting or advancing an agenda. And what a lot of people do is they, when they challenge that, they accuse them essentially on the level of the facts, accuse them of lying. But what's really important is that doing that really challenges people's biases. 
what bias do they bring to this discussion? And I think that while we look at stuff like his tweet that, ch- that called basically said, don't trust the New York Times, it was in some ways you could say, oh my God, this guy's a conspiracy theorist. In another way, you could look at it and say, well, what he's saying is they're looking at the world through this virtual world that we all live in through their lens, and their lens is extremely biased for lots of reasons. Yeah, I would have no problem with that argument. I just think the way he's making it is like a textbook definition of a bad faith argument. It's ad hominem attacks. It's attacking someone standing to make the argument. It's a lot of hand waving. It's a lot of, I guess, what he would call FUD. And, you know, to me, it's just serving an agenda. It's not trying to get at any sort of productive use. It's just he has, he has. Wait, 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 wait. Per our previous conversation, how is it that we engage in a productive dialogue around something like that in our world when you're an outsider, like he is technically an outsider? Um, How is he an outsider? Well, he's an outsider because he's challenging the, 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 the most significant editorial institution in the country. Some guy is like, you know, he's a computer scientist from Stanford who like thinks that like, you know, journalists who like, you know, were under have an undergrad degree from Princeton are like, you know, controlling everything from their their Fort Greene apartments. <laughs> this guy's sitting in Singapore no. with all his billionaire buddies. You're wrong. Because it's not about the per no no <laughs> it's not about the person sitting in, in in a Fort Greene apartment. It's about the institution that's the New York Times. And he's challenging that institution. And as such, he is an outsider. And previously, sort of heretofore, guys like him wouldn't even be able to say anything because they wouldn't have a mechanism like to- they would they would have no platform. So now they have a platform and now the way they run at it, because this is how the world works, is they run at it with hyperbole and accusations. But it's an intellectually dishonest yeah. to try to say that you want to have a conversation and, and talk about the facts, but then kind of bend them so that your narrative is more you know, potent on social media. It's bullshit. Yeah, this is where I struggle because it is dishonest. But to me, it's dis- dishonest in a dishonest game. And a dis- this, this dishonest game in some ways doesn't really matter. It's just this kind of battlefield that plays out in the world of Twitter-based or social media conversations that doesn't actually ever really mean anything. It's just the game. And Trump plays that game. Lots of people play that game. Mm-hmm. Right? Kanye played that game until he overplayed that game. And that game got the best of him or his mental health did or whatever. But people play a different game now. And I could never understand it because I saw Trump playing this game where basically truth didn't fucking matter, but it worked for him. And I think he taught a whole generation of, of communicators that in order to get one up in this kind of communication environment, you had to play a different game. So, yeah, that's what I mean. Their game that they're playing, it seems to me like a lot like Trump's game. How long does it last? How long can this last for? I mean, how long are you going to hear David Sachs? complain about not being able to talk endlessly on his super popular podcast or Fox News or his... <laughs> like, I just like, how, how much bullshit can we take? I don't know, man. There are a lot more people listen to his podcast than ours. I mean, his game is working. But the incoherence of it, I guess, is the part I sort of can't... I mean, we're all sort of hypocrites, but the incoherence of the fact that like, it's like all the, the, the media, quote unquote, the media, um, you know, 
is just about attacking this like new world that we're building here and they've never built anything. And then Sam Bankman Freed is on every cover and it's like, see, this is also an example. And I'm like, well, wait a second. It's like, what, what are you talking about exactly? I, I don't even like t- totally understand what they're trying to accomplish a lot of times because they pop up and attack the quote unquote mainstream media a lot of times. And I don't, I, I just don't see it necessarily. I understand like a lot of the like investigative approach that the New York Times has taken to covering Silicon Valley has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Come on. Come, don't be so sensitive. What they're trying to do is say, listen, guys, Sam Bankman is your fucked up liberal, not ours. Okay. Sam Bankman was the EA guy that was like going to give all his money away and was the second biggest donor to the, to the Democrats. And Sam Bankman was your guy and he's a crook. And that has been going on that, that kind of like, take your guy back has been going on in politics forever. Yeah. But what's the, I think to Brian's point, what's the point? What is, what is winning here? You, you, you're making it sound like they're winning at some game. What, what is the, I guess that's a part of like, you know, it's grown so big and so powerful that now it is basically a political actor, I guess. But what's the end game? What, what, what's the point of saying that? Okay. And they have Murdoch and the Koch brothers and all blah, blah, blah. Well, the, 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 the point of the, the, right. The point of saying that is that your system sucks. Our system's better, right? You're the woke, liberal, powerful New York Times people. You supported this, um, you know, questionable dude, and you take him back. He's a crook. You take him. He's not ours. It's all, it's all just a game, right? Like, you know, your piece fell over. Uh, That's all. I mean, you you know what, you know what Balaji's agenda is. He's a libertarian that hates the woke media. So he, the SBJ is your guy or SBJ, SB, SBF. So it's just a claw more power. I, I just, I guess I don't get it. I mean, it's like me saying like, where well, you know, adults wearing cargo shorts has always been a problem. That guy wore cargo shorts. He's your guy, cargo people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good, good. That's a good one. Yeah. That's- Did you want, maybe we could throw, Brian maybe could come up with a better analogy or metaphor. <laughs> no, I think the cargo shorts works. What's the outlook for M&A in 2023? Because I don't think this is a time you would want to do a deal if you didn't have to do it. It feels like it'll be hard to get deals done. I just want to, I would break it down a little bit, Brian, into why the deals happen. And so, but, and, and, or why they don't happen. So you got a macro environment where you've got eroding margins in these digital businesses, these digital media businesses, right? Actually, media businesses across the board. You're looking at M&A for synergy value because you think that can help you, save you, give you back your EBITDA. In the kind of media that we worked in, I would say programmatic has kind of run its course. It's not really strategic anymore. You can plug it in. Its value isn't really deterministic. Interestingly, affiliate is, you know, drove... You know, it's, it drove, say, the recurrent roll-up, right? That was the logic behind... In, in fact, that was the logic behind Dot Dash Meredith. And that that was a rising uh, re- re- revenue stream and that you could optimize for that. And one company, therefore, found a way to take another company where you could, you could <clears throat> improve that revenue stream. 
And I would say that's that too is flattening a little bit. The financial space, financial media has been really good for some. I'm involved with a company that's doing very well there. The creator space is hot, 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 I think still, and video related to that. And I think we're suddenly getting a little more, one last thing is a little more realistic about e-commerce. Everybody in media wanted to be in e-commerce until they got into e-commerce. And I don't mean e-commerce like affiliate. I mean like actually selling and making shit. Yeah. Because as soon as you start doing that, to me, you, you're not even a media business anymore. You're an e-commerce business. Like it takes over your business. As soon as you have to manufacture, des- design, manufacture, ship out products, sell products, to me, you become commerce to content, not content to commerce, pretty much. And you see that in lots of businesses like, say, a Food 52 or Houdinki. You're in the business of, of, of selling things. Yeah. So the Checkered agree- history, by the way. This is one of those things that's better on paper than in reality. At least historically. I think that it's hard when one business is about marginal economics and one's about unit economics. They're hard to mix. Explain the difference there. Well, one is you make the thing, you make a bunch of media and then you go out and sell it and every dollar that you earn selling it, you know, is is basically profitable. Like it's profit, right? Because you've already made the product. The other one is you sell a product and it has a whole bunch of cost in it, right? You got to sell it. You got to make it. You got to ship it. You, 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 those are your sort of unit costs. So in one case, you got to grind out unit by unit, like get your cost of goods sold lower, you know, manage your, your customer acquisition costs, try to sell people more, get your order value up. Like it's an obsession to get the economics right at the unit level. But in media, a business of marginal media, marginal revenue and marginal profit, you get can, right? You get people flying people around to Saint Tropez on a helicopter because if they only bought another million dollars of media, it would pay for it. You follow? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, each of the businesses, I think, are really different. So, I don't know. I think next year, I think this Vox bustle thing, clearly, uh, those guys are looking for a deal. They've been trying. I mean, I've heard this story for the last six months, Group Black and other financial partners. And, you know, I think someone like a Brian would love to sell him his company. Although Brian Goldberg, Brian Goldberg, I think he would love to sell the company. I don't. I think yeah. Jim has a has a different problem. Jim Jim Bangkok. Bangkok. Yeah, I think he's got an amazing company, done an amazing job, has some great brands in there. I think if you were Group Black, you'd way rather have that brand or that set of brands. Except, I think the Group Nine thing's really hard. Yeah. So, just as a reminder, Group Nine included the acquisition of the Dodo, now this news, and Pop Sugar, right? Yeah, they have, a lot, they have they have some. Well, they have Seeker. They have a couple weird brands in there too. I mean, they have a couple good brands, but a couple weird ones. Media companies that combine sort of more prestige brands with, you know, different sort of say more mass brands. It's hard to combine them in an entity. I think you get haves and have-nots. I think there's the people that want to work on the cut, and then there's the people that feel like they have to work on Pop Sugar. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, so you're saying, so are we going to see more deals or, or fewer deals or not? I think you're going to see page-based media people try to consolidate when they yeah. can find the... the <laughs> but can, it, here's the thing, like BuzzFeed was telling us this story and they've now been public for some time. Their, their stock is down 82%. Yeah, it's not good. It's the, the, I just checked the market cap is 200 Fifty million. I mean, that's well, like, but that's just, like I don't know. Maybe I'm not answering your question. Time but. spent is like down by a third. Like this, this page view based media the model. You can combine 
as many of them as you want. It just doesn't seem like a good business. I think you might see companies buying up IP. So that's the sort of candle <clears> night <throat> media play. I think that Meredith spends the year digging out. They're not going to buy any companies. I think Condé's working on their global strategy to get the most out of their existing IP. I can't see them buying a lot and I can't see Hearst buying a lot. So I don't know. Where's the, where's the action? It's going to be a slow year would be my take. Okay. Private equity will swoop in, chop stuff up. That's my <laughs> prediction. That's your outsider take. Yeah. Well, you're inside with the private equity boys. So, To me, it just looks like the web's going to be a miserable place in five years' time. Why? I think it's becoming harder to be an independent creator that has a website. Apple's not incentivized to make it good and is probably actively trying to make it worse so you download their apps. And it's about to get overwhelmed by AI content trying to suck up all the SEO juice. I think it's, it's, uh, and there's no money in it. There's, you know, I mean, everything you're saying just sounds like, to me as an outsider here, sounds like there's no money to be made on the web. No money. No money. I think there's money in being Mr. Beast. Sure, but yeah, that's on but YouTube. Well, well, it's on YouTube and at a, you know, at a burger place near you. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of these businesses, you wouldn't start them again today, right? Never. I mean, there was a world it. we were building 20 years ago where creators would end up with a means of production and distribution and revenue. And that world is not going to happen. And I will forever mourn it. Good product. Good product. Good product. Good product. All right. What's good product? My good product this week is about anybody is for anybody that needs to go off piste, which basically means I think you have to look at your media habits and make a conscious effort to listen to or explore things that are either, either explicitly challenging your point of view or in a completely different category, which gives you a break or a different view on the world. So this morning, I would have, you know, often listened to, I would have hate listened to Prof G. I would have perhaps, you know, I like Kara Swisher. I might have listened to Pivot. I can't, I actually don't listen to the Daily anymore. Um, I do listen to Lex. I listen to a bunch of business oriented or let's just call it, I do listen to Peter Kafka, uh, just stuff that's aligned with my professional mm -hmm. interests. And I just took some time today to listen to one that I really love, which is just a couple of knuckleheads that talk about music and culture. It's called How Long Gone. And it's a oh, podcast. Chris. That, Chris Black. Do you know Chris? Yeah. Yep. And I just kind of appreciated getting off my little tread, my little sort of professional, you know, rut. But when you say off content. piece, you mean like outside of like your, your, specific interests or like i see i always go like ideological like yeah i thought you were gonna say politics. ben shapiro oh i did that too i did that too this week yeah you, even Jesus. though you chastised me for that but i uh ben shapiro was on you know actually i think that podcasts have become the truly disruptive media product in our world 
Uh, it, they're just such a great product. But I, Lex Friedman had had uh, Ben Shapiro on, and I listened to half of it because it's too long. But how long gone wasn't about challenging my my sort of philosophical or or moral or political thinking. It was just about not listening to work shit. It's just about yeah. listening to a couple of guys talk about music with with a band called from England called Dry Cleaning. An interesting band, anyway. That's that's what I got for you guys. If you if uh, hopefully you uh, you see where I'm coming from. If not, fuck you. I think. Are you saying that the antidote is maybe not listening to the opposite? Are you just are you saying a good product is having interests or just ignoring or? <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know what? We're trying to make it work here, Troy. It, no, I know, I know. You know what I was expecting? I was expecting. <laughs> You know, Troy, you always surprise me with a good product. Sometimes I think you're going to bring in like a blender and you come I out mean, of I nowhere with something. I don't want to be that something. cynical guy. like, congratulations, you've invented having interests. But to me, it sounded more like you were saying, you know, just ignore shit for a little while and listen to something non-consequential. That's right. That's my good product this week. It's not really a product. It's just some something I Things did of that no I liked. consequence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you had cited earlier in the week, was that a study or something that showed like, it was like advocating people, I forget what they called, like, just like ignoring media. It's critical ignoring in the digital world. Ignorance. Distracting low quality information, false and misleading information and trolls and bad act and malicious actors. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just say, so you had shared something earlier, I think it was a quasi academic study and it advocated for something called it was from it was from uh newman lab yeah oh okay but so that's legitimate well there's a story appeared there the research was from some academic place some academic place critical ignorance does that sound familiar is it so you're you're advocating basically for critical ignorance and also just to find some joy in media that's unconnected from maybe the things that you are doing day to day and my my choice today, although I wouldn't recommend this for everybody, was how long gone. Okay, good. What do you got? Do you have anything? You usually like to throw in a best product, cheese steak or something like that. Good product. My good product was like was going to an office. I've gone to an office the last like week and a half now, and I like it. I think I think that the return to office is actually going to happen. I've gone. I've I've come completely back to from where. I, I was starting with, which was saying the office was gone and it was always stupid and stuff like this. And maybe it's being in New York City and, you know, smaller apartments and stuff like this. But I think going to an office is actually a good product. Big thanks to Troy Alex and our podcast editor, Jay Sparks of Pod Help Us. A reminder, please do send me your feedback on the show. You can email me at bmarsy at gmail.com. And to leave the show a rating on Apple and Spotify. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review there. Hope it's nice. And I hope the ratings are five stars. Five stars.